Our first scripture, scripture reading this morning is from the 15th chapter of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, which can be found on page 165 in the New Testament of your Bible. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which you are also being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we reclaim, and so you have come to believe. May God bless this reading and hearing of his word. Gospel lesson continues in the gospel according to Luke. We're in the fifth chapter today, beginning with the first verse, and we'll read through the eleventh. Once, while Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners into the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they brought the boats to shore, they left everything. And followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. Silence in us every voice that is not your own. Quiet our hearts so we can truly hear. For you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else should we bother going? To the glory of Christ. Amen. How would you 
respond? How would you, you know, they say that good TED Talks start with a question, so I'm trying to come up with a good question at the beginning of my sermon because I want to want to do a good job. So the question is, how would you react, how would you respond if you discovered that your life's purpose turned out to have no meaning? What would you do? If you found out that your life's purpose suddenly had very little or no meaning. In preparing my sermon, I always begin with the texts. Four possibilities are given each week by the lectionary. There's a psalm, which I usually kind of morph into the responsive call to worship, and usually a passage from Hebrew scriptures, an epistle lesson, and a gospel. I then go through all four of the texts and see which ones kind of give a thematic connection uh, before times when we were gathering in person, you would hear all four texts in the first service as I would have the assistant read the Hebrew scripture and then the epistle and then I'd usually read the gospel. But we've been working to try and shorten the service a little bit to keep the aerosols at a minimum insofar as that's possible. So we've dropped one of the readings and usually gives us an additional three to five minutes uh, to compress the service, or give me three to five minutes to spend more time on the introduction of my sermon. <laughs> After which I, I read the remaining passages and carefully look for any hook that grabs my attention. Most frequently I end up focusing on what strikes me, what stands out, what is an insight, or what is weird that is going on here? What, what doesn't make a lot of sense? Some phrase or words that need deeper exploration. I then look at the textual, historical, and geographic and linguistic context. Do I know what's going on better if I read the chapters before and after what has just happened in the text we're reading for today? Or is it helpful to understand the themes of the whole book and who it is written to and who first heard it? What's going on in the text when it was first read historically? What were their lives like? And where did this happen geographically? What inspired these particular words written by the author and then selected by the translators as they tried to unpack the meaning of the text that I am sharing? I start with the text because I believe that it is what binds us together. It holds us together as Christians. It's what makes these 66 odd books bound into the same volume scripture. It's a kind of an absurd notion that these desperate pieces of writings written over a period of almost 3,000 years that are now almost 2,000 years old, the newest of them, have been transcribed and transmitted and copied generation after generation, translated and then retranslated and refined through archaeological discovery and discerned and debated by scholars probably more than any other writing on the planet. As a church, we're somehow connected to it, to all of them. There's something about these ancient characters, and by characters I mean not only the scribble on the page, but the personalities that are being described, that makes us kin. That We try and discover that they are like us, and we are like them, and we are like one another. Somewhere in these stories, these themes, is a message. I believe it is God trying to speak to us from these pages. 
and trying to speak to us something about the meaning of life, something about the purpose of our existence, something that will change the way that we see the world and the way that we look at one another, to understand our history as part of a larger history, to define our place. And so delving in our texts today, plowing through the lexicons and reading the historical context, one verse stood out to me above all others. It's verse 8 that I just read, where Peter drops to Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, it's not the phrase that I find outstanding. People are dropping to their knees and confessing their sinfulness to Jesus all over the Gospels. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It occurs in one form or another all over the text. It's not the content of Peter's confession that sticks out to me. It's two other things about it. First of all, Peter is so overwhelmed with his sinful condition that he cannot bear to have Jesus around. I am such a sinner that I do not even want to be near you. Peter orders Jesus to get away from him. I can't deal with it. Whenever I am close to you, I suddenly realize how inferior I am. I feel awful about myself. But deeper than that is that the act of Peter's confession is triggered by what happened. What made Peter so uncomfortable to be around Jesus? The story is told of a jazz pianist, U.B. Uh, Blake. He was a ragtime pianist. Uh, he, he, among other things, gave us uh, I'm So Wild About Harry. That was one of, one of his contributions to stage. Um, Blake and his manager one day went to Carnegie Hall to hear the great Sergei Rachmaninoff play. And during the intermission, his manager turns to U.E. Blake and he said, you should be ashamed of yourself convincing people that you knew how to play the piano when this guy is in the world. <laughs> Another musical analogy, you know, John Baptiste, um, the, the pianist, also a jazz pianist and musician. He tells the story of going to his piano teacher and showing off there in Louisiana, in the little town, to his piano teacher, all of the things that he could do. And the piano teacher went over and put on a record. And the record began to play, and John Batiste said, well, that's, that's lovely, I recognize the tune, it's T for two, and that's a great, great jazz duet. The piano teacher said, that's not a duet, that's Art Tatum. John Batiste said that he couldn't touch the piano for a month and a half after he had heard greatness. Peter catches fish. That's his profession. That's what he does. It's his craft. It's his purpose. But something happens with Jesus that makes him suddenly feel completely worthless. Peter has given his life to this profession, and he was good at it. He was a master. He'd learned from his father, who, by the way, had a fish named Jonah. Peter's father's name was Jonah. And his focus was fish, his livelihood was fish, his wisdom. But there's nothing more frustrating than to be at the peak of your career and knowledge and know all the tricks and how to do your best at it and then come up empty. That's been Peter's night shift before Jesus came to the shore in the morning to speak. Pointless. Tossing nets, waiting pulling nothing tossing nets waiting pulling 
nothing all along it's nearly dawn the markets are going to be open soon in a few short hours and people are going to show up at the markets and they're going to expect fresh fish but peter has nothing peter's got bubkus bubkus by the way in word study the word bubkus comes from a slavic turn meaning goat droppings isn't that cool Sometimes I find out things that have nothing to do with the sermon, but they're kind of cool to know. Sun is appearing over the horizon. Jesus comes along with a small crowd of followers and pushes out in Simon's boat and Peter's boat, which he uses as a speaker's dais to deliver his morning meditation to the gathered crowd. We don't get the content of Jesus' devotional, but we can probably guess because we have so many other meditations in the Gospels that Jesus gave, these meditations offered by a carpenter's son. Probably something about gaining the whole world but losing your soul, or something about the blessing of the poor, the downtrodden, or blessing to the peacemakers. Peter and the other laborers sitting there mending their nets on the shore can hear Early morning lake, the voice carries. It's hard to not hear what Jesus is saying. And Jesus offers his closing prayer. It's something about daily bread and forgiveness and temptation and the kingdom and the power and the glory being God's alone. Peter's heard much of this before and he hears it again. And then this guy trained as a carpenter who also is something of a teacher says amen and looks at the fishing boats and the fishers there on the shore and has the audacity to say let's row out to deep water and drop your nets <laughs> you can hear you can hear the sarcasm in peter's voice he says we we know what we've do, we we're doing peter it's my profession fishing is what i do it's who i am we've been at it all night but if you think it's a good idea carpenter kid uh, we'll go out and drop the nets one more time there's no narration here. There doesn't have to be. We can intuit the point. You think you're a master fisherman, Peter? You think that you know all about fish? You think fish matter to you and you're the best? You've been up all night fixated about fish or even harder fixated about the absence of fish? Is that your life's value? Is that your purpose? Is that your meeting? If you think it's all about fish, then fine, Peter. I'll give you fish. I'll give you more fish than you could sell in a month. I'll give you so many fish that you're going to throw back more fish than you'll be able to ever carry to market. It'll be an embarrassment of fish. Not one boat, but two boats full of fish. They're going to sink. It was at that moment that Peter's meaning his life was called into question. His purpose snapped into perspective. It wasn't that fishing was meaningless. Fishing is a noble profession. It's who they were, and it's what they had to do. But Peter suddenly realized that defining his value, his identity, on his capacity as a fish locator was way, way too small. So the question, how would you react if you discovered that your life's purpose was meaningless? How would you respond? Sinner, Peter calls himself. Sinner. It's another one of those Bible words that needs some explaining because the way we use it isn't the way that the text intended it. 
Sinner is not a term that applies to people of decadent moral character. Peter is not saying that I'm a filthy scumbag unworthy of your holy presence. Peter is using the word that we translate as sinner in a way that it literally means I'm off target. My aim is no longer accurate. I have focused on two things, Peter is saying. I have focused on my mastery over fish, and I have focused on my own heroism as being the best fisher in all of Gennesaret. And now, <laughs> now I'm not swimming with the fish, I am swimming in fish. I suddenly realized that I had been obsessed with something that has no eternal value. Usually in the text, when somebody falls at Jesus' feet and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, Jesus' next reaction is to let them know that their capacity is transformed by God's gracious forgiveness, and he sends them on the way. He says, your sins are forgiven. Okay? Go on your way. Pick up your bed and walk. Stand and walk. Open your eyes and see. And they're transformed and they go away. But in this instance with Peter, when Peter has come to terms with the fact that the meaning and purpose of his life has not measured up to something that had eternal value, Jesus does not say you are forgiven, go. Jesus says, come, follow me. Let's rework that purpose together not about fish but about people not about the temporal market of how much you have to be able to take into town that day to make a few bucks it is about the eternal value of the men and the women and the boys and girls whom you have the privilege to touch every day he recalibrates the purpose and meaning of his life not in a momentary healing but in a whole new walk. All of us have things that make us important, that make us feel valued, things that we know, things that we do, our connections, our access, our wisdom, our business, our capacity to discern things that others can't figure out, and that's how we keep our jobs, and that begins to be how we define ourselves. But is it enough? Is it sufficient? I think I'm a pretty good pe preacher. I work hard at it. Preaching gives me pleasure. But what if it turns out that it's not about the sermon? What if it turns out that it's actually about the following? What if it's not about the preaching? What if it turns out it's about the people? Suddenly I think I understand what Jesus says next to Peter. Do not be afraid. Amen. Amen. Stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth.